There is a wolf in me. Fangs pointed for tearing gashes, a red tongue for raw meat, and the hot lapping of blood. I keep this wolf because the wilderness gave it to me, and the wilderness will not let it go. Thank you, Chris Funderburg. And what was that from? That is Carl Sandburg's Wilderness, which today we're talking about the difference between man and animal. Aren't we, John? Who are we? What is this? Why are we here? This is the Pink Smoke Podcast. You are Chris Funderburg. I am John Cribbs. And I'm always happy when I get that right. But we are here to talk about man, beast, men who call themselves Marianne. God damn it, Shay. God damn them all. We're talking about Prime Cut, the 1972 film starring Lee Marvin, Gene Hackman, the debut of Sissy Spacek, directed by Michael Ritchie. And uh, before we start today, I've already given you one, one quote to set the mood. And this is a quote I want you to think about because today we are going to solve the most vexing enigma to plague cinephiles of all time we are going to me and you solve the michael ritchie problem me and you is what we're going to do but the quote i want you to think about is this andre malro quote a masterpiece isn't better rubbish right and this is a quote that i came across because Truffaut liked to bring it up to sort of argue with it because Truffaut thought well my movies are just better rubbish And a masterpiece isn't fundamentally different than a piece of sort of disposable, forgettable entertainment, right? That a masterpiece isn't, is, is, is not different than a genre film. But Andre Malro has the quote about what makes something a masterpiece is a fundamentally different nature of what it is as an artwork than the crap, than the garbage, right? And I think no filmmaker taxes this this issue more than Michael Ritchie. Uh, today we are talking about Michael Ritchie's second-ish movie, which is Prime Cut, as we mentioned. And I say second-ish because it opened virtually simultaneously with The Candidate. In New York City, Prime Cut opened on the 28th and The Candidate opened on the 30th of 1972. So as basically as close as you can get two movies to opening uh, for a same director, it's it's pretty well unheard of uh, for that to happen. Um, Not often that you walk into a theater and say, which Michael Ritchie movie should we see? <laughs> the answer is none. I will say also, we, we threw this episode together. For some reason, this was like a last second audible. Uh, not that we threw the episode together. I did an incredible amount of research on the episode is what's leading up to this. Uh, but we just sort of came up with the idea of doing prime cut sort of off the cuff and then got into it. And I will say, having watched a bunch of Michael Ritchie movies at a certain point, all I could think is I don't want to watch any more Michael Ritchie movies. Like these are bad movies. Uh, at a certain point I was watching a bunch of them and was like, I, I really hate this. I really hate this undertaken we've gotten ourselves into, uh, in a lot of ways. Um, but the between those movies, Prime Cut and The Candidate, which uh, opened virtually simultaneously, um, I think the consensus is that The Candidate is the good one and Prime Cut is the not as good one. You Can you take us through what the plot of Prime Cut and The Candidate are just real briefly? 
Prime Cut is a story of a rivalry between uh, an Irish mob in Chicago and an outfit in Kansas run by uh, Gene Hackman, which is a very farm-based, agriculture-based outfit that are drug dealers and white slavers, but they are their front is that they're uh, herders and, and, and uh, meat industry guys, right? And they make sausage and they make hamburgers. Real and heartland kind of like, America types. And they're like the local celebrities for that. I mean, they're like the, you know, the like the mayor at the at all the local fairs and things like that. Marianne, played by Gene Hackman, is very popular in this area. And the the the, the problem is that they've stiffed Chicago on all this money. When Chicago sent someone, an enforcer, to get the money back, they sent him back a sausage. They cut him up and they they, they chopped him into weenies. You of see his, package. his wrist watching his butt on the sausage assembly line uh, at the beginning of the film. Which I have to say just right off, that is just the... Once you kind of get past the like, oh, this is like shock of that scene... Just, just the, the the logistics of this is really confusing. Like it's a it's an operational slaughterhouse. You assume not everybody there is in on it. Yeah. By the way, he's kind of like distracting people and like you know the the uh, weenie the the guy who is has done this and is uh, the character's name is weenie. Following following this uh, carcass along as it's processed, <laughs> it just seems bizarre that like let's just throw a guy with his clothes on in with the regular meat and nobody will notice as he's being shredded and turned into sausages <laughs> it just seems like that's that's a weird thing to just think yeah this, really, this will work out just fine really makes you think it does so, so the chicago group send lee marvin who is a you know an aging mobster to collect this money that gene hackman owes to them and it get they, uh, there's immediate tension. You know they're kind of old rivals. They were um, both courting the same same gal, Clarabelle, who is currently married to Gene Hackman. So there's history. Seems to have something history. with the uh, Irish mob boss in Chicago as well. She seems to know everybody. Yes. And while they're there, Lee Marvin just happens upon uh, some sort of auction of naked orphan girls who they have. Uh, raised at an orphanage and specifically kind of turned into drugged out sex slaves so that they could drug them up put them literally in pens and I mean this is obviously the point that everyone remembers this movie for is walking among the surreal imagery of these nude young women in you know these in in the hay in in these these, behind these fences talk about hay hay in the hayloft am I right John exactly that's exactly what it is but one of them is Sissy Spacek who asks Lee Marvin to help her. And so he does. He kind of spontaneously takes her with them and gets her away from their clutches. And so she kind of becomes the vulnerable spot for him because and, she's constantly in danger in the film. And from there, Lee Marvin busts up the uh, sex slavery slash pork sausage ring, the non-determinate criminal enterprise being conducted uh, by Gene Hackman's Mary. Well, it's not. He says specifically, it's drugs and flesh is what yes. he peddles. So that's what he's doing, and he uses the drugs also to numb these women so that he can sell them to clients for fifteen, twenty thousand dollars. But I, but I will say the the intersection of the farmland activity and the the front businesses that he's heavily involved in the drug dealing business. There's way more farm stuff in this movie than there is criminal 
activity in this yeah. film. Oh, absolutely. This is kind of a weird one, actually, to try to access in order to solve the Michael Ritchie problem, as it is so much different than a lot of his movies. But I think to me, that's I've important. always thought of it. Yeah, but to me, I've always thought of it as, you know, Lee Marvin walking into a Michael Ritchie movie, you know, yes. from a completely different film. He's essentially playing his Walker character from Point Blank, you know, or something like that, who really just seems completely vexed by what he finds at this this uh, Kansas, these this flat land and these giant skies. I mean, he seems completely out of place. Yeah. And not only that, but I, apparently Marvin hated Michael Ritchie, which is shocking if you know Why? anything about Michael Ritchie. <laughs> that was sarcasm right there. Um, no, uh, he um, he's quoted as saying that he the specific reason he said he didn't like Michael Ritchie was he said he pushes the little guy around. He likes yeah. to exploit the little guy, which I don't know if that's a specific reference to like on the set like on production or if he was talking about just his general theme of you know podunks and hicks and things like that yeah parades and uh well what's what's the plot of the candidate let's go through that too just so we can can get that out of the way at the front the the candidate is yeah the candidate is a much more specific richie archetype of film which is that robert redford is a good-looking law assistant or something like that his father was the very popular governor of California for a long time. And he is approached by uh, Peter Boyle, who is a political campaign manager, because the incumbent uh, Republican candidate for Senate is uh, pretty much com- unopposed, you know, has nobody going up against him. They want him to run as the Democratic candidate, specifically with the idea that he is not, it has no chance that he's not going to win, but the kind of seduce him by saying looks listen you know we're gonna tell you up front you have no chance to beat this guy but while you're up there you can kind of expose all of your ideals and your you know political thoughts you can kind of get those out there and be seen you know for a while so it's a losing proposition but you get something out of it and that's sort of the idea going into it is that we're going to show you how to run a campaign for purely you know kind of manipulative political reasons and you know so of course it's Richie's constant themes of competition and and, and setting someone up to lose specifically, which we saw, you know, in films like Downhill Racer and The Bad News Bears and Smile. I mean, these are films, you know, our friend Kevin Marr, who's a big Michael Ritchie fan, likes to say that the end of Bad News Bears, where they lose the game, spoiler, uh, is sort of like a reflection of, of Vietnam, right? Of American attitude after the Vietnam War and the idea that you can win even though you lose. But I think specific, even more specifically, Michael Ritchie's films are a reflection of what American audiences wanted to see after Vietnam, which was films about losers. And so specifically, he doesn't make films where Lee Marvin walks onto this, the scene and he's a very cool customer and nothing nothing phases him and he's going to smack everybody around and, and bust up this uh, prostitution ring. He doesn't make movies like that. He makes movies about people who are pathetic, like Bruce Stern's character from Smile uh, or Buttermaker from uh, Walter Matthau from Bad News Bears. People who, you know, don't have ambitions and, you know, don't or are fools or ridiculous fools. So Prime Cut is just on that, on its face, not very Michael Ritchie-esque. Yes. Although you are, I think starting to get at the Michael Ritchie problem, which is that when you talk about Michael Ritchie-esque, you only mean the films from the 70s. 
you are completely disregarding when he becomes a journeyman director, journeyman director. I, maybe he's more himself than ever, but in the eighties, when he starts making movies like wildcats and the golden child and the survivors and couch trip and Digstown, eventually you are sort of disregarding what it means to be Michael Ritchie by getting by ignoring his most successful and popular films, things like downhill racer and the candidate were not hits. Uh, they were not even, uh, fantastically well-reviewed, although the candidate was, and that Michael Ritchie is sort of not making, he's making well-regarded but not huge films. And then in the 80s, he is making financially successful films for a stretch there that are, I think, generally regarded as pieces of shit with the exception of Fletch. Well, here's where the turn comes, right? Because another film, another film that Kevin Moore likes to point out as a a Vietnam-influenced film is Rocky, right? Sylvester Stallone's huge film. That ends yeah. with him losing the fight, but still being a winner. And I think that's where the kind of American uh, sentimentality towards the characters shifted as well. 80s, we wanted winners again, guys who were kind of of lowly station, but were going to be smarter and better than everyone else. They were going to be an, you know, a Fletch type character yeah. or even James Woods in Digstown, where these characters were losers, but they were somebody who were able to take care of themselves and beat the bad guys and like a, a much more definitive line between like who are the good guys and who are the Tim Mathesons, you know, who are the villains of these pieces. So I think that when he goes into journeyman mode and makes movies like Wildcats and the Golden Child, you know, he's back to doing heroes again. You know, I think that the kind of popular opinion on what we want to see in movies changed. And I think that the eighties movies get, and the early nineties movies get a little bit more interesting for that reason, because he's kind of trying to push the Michael Ritchie agenda to those films when they really don't need it or, or like, you know, they struggle against it. That's what I think that it's a little outdated at that point. Why I was bringing up the, the candidate and prime cut together so much is that the consensus is candidate is the good one. And prime cut is not as good one. And I think that most people think of the candidate as being somewhere between good and quite good and prime cut somewhere between interestingly bad and straight up bad. Right. But I see them much closer together than that. I actually prefer Prime Cut to The Candidate, which is to say, I think I prefer the Michael Ritchie problem, which we'll get into is, I think Michael Ritchie gets in the way of himself. Uh, And I prefer when there's less Michael Ritchie in the films than when there's more. Theoretically, when that actually happens, those are objectively worse movies you know we can we can discuss this uh more as we dig into the richie problem and the richie problem is is he a good director or not is he an auteur or not that's the michael richie problem are these movies worth being considered as a body of work or are they just like a bunch of messes made by somebody who eventually revealed himself to have no real distinct personality you know, is it sort of he's acting of the air and then and then does not with the candidate? I I have a, it's like a lot of his movies, his early satires, the 70s satires. It has a very broad, obvious satirical theme, which is that the political machine turns every politician into a sellout, right? That the political machine just drains out whatever's interesting out of politicians. And for whatever reason, they might go into politics. It's gone by the end, right? I can't detect any difference 
between Robert Redford's characters, his empty bromides and soulless political speak that he's giving by the end of the film and when he's supposedly keeping it real. He's a total cipher of a character. And the idea that he's being changed is mainly something you have to project into the movie. Um, but alternatively, the idea that he stood for nothing to begin with and that's why he won is something you have to step over that broad theme that's being emphasized by the script to get to a more complex idea. And I think that's just projection. I, I think that it's just a not very convincing movie based on a really broad, uh, something that's, that's a truism that's or so true as to be trivial, which is that the political process makes politicians dishonest. This is like, has the complexity of a lawyer joke. You know what I mean? I think it's, I think it's a bucket of smoke. I think it's not a good movie. Well, if Where I could play devil's advocate, because I agree with you, I'm not a big fan of the candidate, but would you not say that the point of the movie is that you have that confusion, that you really start to not be able to discern between his actual, you know, heartfelt emotional thoughts on how to change, how to make, how to reform and how to change the country and the kind of, you know, generic crap that they feed him that they need to defeat this incumbent. I mean, th no, that everything's just going to get mixed up. Because Redford's performance and character are such a cipher that that there's nothing there's nothing to it. It doesn't feel like he's being played to be malleable. It feels like a performance that hasn't been colored in at all. It feels very empty to it. And again, it's the kind of thing where it touches on big, important subjects that a lot of people have opinions about. And I think it's all projection. I think if you sit there and watch the movie, it has this very broad theme that it doesn't elaborate on at all. And I mm -hmm. think if you're a smart audience, you can come to it and pour stuff into it. But I think it's, I think it's very middle brow in that way. I think that it's doesn't have much to say that it's basically confirming a bunch of sort of, uh, generic ideas that are generally agreed upon about the way the world works uh, in a way that's not in a way that's not interesting if you compare it to I kept thinking of a the obvious comparison uh, which is extremely unfavorable to him for Michael Ritchie is Robert Altman. Robert Altman. He's, he's Robert, Robert Altman light but watching it this time I kept thinking of broadcast news right? And how much better and more complex of a movie that is, which is also about sort of image culture, right? And just if you had characters as good as the characters in broadcast news in The Candidate, it would be a masterpiece the way broadcast news is, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Instead, it's something very empty. Um, I, I, I'm going to jump in just to agree with you that I okay. think that I, I always found Richie most interesting for his flaws. And I think you're onto something where the, that emptiness is kind of based on this cynical idea, this, this, this very liberal cynical idea he has, which is that you can't change anything, right? That the idea is that these systems are in place. If you're going to, if you're going to join the ski team, if you're going to, you know, run a pageant, if you're going, yeah, if you're going to try to run for office, these things can't be changed. You actually cannot do, make any kind of changes within the system. And so in the end, even though you're a winner, you're a loser because, you know, you just become part of the system at the end of it. Yeah, but he's also, he's a satirist, sort of. Satire only shows Very up in, in his yeah. films, but he chooses 
the broadest, easiest, most obvious targets, beauty pageants, professional sports, politicians. It's just like a Jay Leno monologue. It's just taking shots at backwoods yokels, you know, just taking a shot at the at the easiest fucking targets, which makes it feel com- both completely toothless and sort of idiotic to me. I think those subjects in general are more complex than a Jay Leno joke but, gives but, them credit for. But but do you not agree with me that that's Richie's thought on in these films that the tragedy is that you know these things can't be changed and that why Prime Cut you know seems like not a Michael Ritchie movie is that oh they could change if we send fucking Lee Marvin in to you know bust shit up then you I know think... that then your <laughs> your degradation of women and you know casual murder drug dealing empire will be destroyed because that's not the way things should be and Lee Marvin's got something to say about that I think that I think that Prime Cut we agree is interesting because it's so weird. Yeah. That movie is just so weird and, and it feels like a miscalculation. So Richie's career, uh, he starts with downhill racer, which is, um, a good movie. I would After say directing TV for a long time. Yeah. His first feature film is downhill racer and working on a political campaigns. And he's like, he's a rich, kid harvard guy he's the son of like berkeley professors and he's very much coastal moneyed elite when you think of them so when you look at the targets he chooses it's very by the book moneyed rich guy limousine liberal stuff is very much where he's coming from on all this and in a lot of ways he's the perfect compatriot for robert redford in that sense although robert redford both as a person and a performer is a lot more generous about that stuff but he's it makes sense that those guys would would team up in a lot of ways um but prime cut it's it's much more unclear what the idea of that movie is in a lot of ways. I still got to say the, the meat in it is so disgustingly gross that it feels, um, feels like a pizza and driller killer is what it feels like. Yeah. You don't ever want to eat meat when watching this movie again, but true to Michael Ritchie, you don't get the sense that it's a vegetarian statement. It's both it's, it leans in one direction and then doesn't take the thought as far as it can go and ends up with all these leftovers. I also got to say, because there's an opening sequence with meat getting made when I was a, a film programmer, audiences never flipped out more and got angrier than when they saw a movie with actual meat being made in it. We wouldn't get complaints about anything except for like when we showed killer of sheep and a year of 13 moons frederick reisman's meat and we would get furious emails we would get angry phone calls after it by far i mean we would show stuff about like israel you know what i mean that wouldn't get half as strong a reaction we would show we stuff about like you know, the George W. Bush. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, that's not going to get a reaction, but you, but stuff that like very hot button topic stuff that would get no reaction. But when you showed actual uh, violence towards animals on screen in the process of making meat, uh, Godard's weekend is another one. People, people lost their fucking mind. Yeah. And compared to some of those films, prime cut is pretty tame. I think the opening scene, it's not like yeah. you get a lot of graphic, scenes of uh, you know animals being split open and things like that uh, blood kind of you know being collected in buckets and whatnot 
but I think weird is the is the first word that comes to everybody's mind when you bring up this movie is what a weird film just such a strange tone and it's another one too where I feel like if you sit someone down who is a cinephile but has not seen this movie and you explain what this movie is Lee Marvin versus Gene Hackman Sissy Spacek uh introduced to the public you know nude in uh in in the hay and Michael Ritchie directing they'll be like that sounds like the best movie I've never seen before slam dunk on a nine-foot rim There is no movie, that's exactly, I was going to bring this up, where there's no movie that sounds more like I would be into it than Prime Cut. Really, on on paper, it's just so perfect on paper. Um, So completely perfect. And you also have to sort of, adding Michael Ritchie into it, you sort of have to not know who he is for that formula. That's one of the funny things when we went to record this, is I, and put this episode together, I thought, well, I don't know much about Michael Ritchie, definitely not as much as Cribs, and definitely not as much as our friend Kevin Marr, who's sort of a resident Michael Ritchie expert, which is maybe a dubious uh, I, I, I still consider myself uh, a Ritchie novice in a lot of ways. I have, I've only seen half his movies, and a lot of those 80 ones I haven't even gone to. I haven't seen Semi-Tough yet. And, oh, really? Uh, you know, there are a bunch of them that I haven't seen. But here's so, the thing. When I yeah. looked at his filmography, I realized I do know all of these movies, that I've mm. seen virtually all of them. Yeah, that I've only so seen the of... famous ones and Dickstown pretty much, <laughs> the ones but, I've seen. Oh, really? But he's done, he did so many movies like Wildcats and The Survivors and Golden Child that, that were the kind of movies that you just see without meaning to see in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways, bad news bears and that sort of thing that fletch that, that you don't necessarily mean in your life ever to set out to see that are sort of put in front of you. He might be the top director of movies that people just sort of see without meaning to, right? He might be the number one director of movies that, Oh, I've seen all of this guy's movies of anybody. <laughs> I think I think every single one of those 80s movies that I mentioned, including like Cow Trip and stuff, was like an HBO mainstay and then a basic cable mainstay and then like a movie of the week mainstay. Something like Wildcats was just like, nobody ever meant to see Wildcats. It was just everywhere. The Goldie Hawn yeah. football comedy. Yeah. Um, and yeah. It's and, just and, circumstance and I, also, I miss so many of them. I I do want to say in a general way about him, he did far, far more movies that are bad than are good. But he also did far, far more movies that are interesting than uninteresting, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's an important thing to remember about him is that even when he's doing something like The Island, which I watched to do this podcast, which is just so god awful you know what i mean it's still an interesting movie and it's but but here's the other thing where we're talking about what is an art tour anyway they're interesting but they're not in that category of interesting failure that auteurs normally generate where you feel like he's chasing after his muse too hard and lost his way because there's things he's interested in when he does a truly terrible movie like the survivors you don't feel like he's running after something he's interested in you you feel like these movies are interesting but how the fuck did he get involved? Like, how does he fit into the puzzle in some way? You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, well, it's funny. I mean, 
you brought to my attention a Vincent Canby article that we're going to come back to later on, <laughs> but but I, I but I think is really reflective of the time, which is that Richie had his fans, but I don't think he was ever considered one of the what the Hollywood the new Hollywood seventies directors like Altman, right? He didn't have yeah. that stature. So while he was, you know, I'm, you know, ha- for a while he was having his tentpole films that were ones that you know really kind of reflected his his thoughts and ones that he had a, an amazing altruistic kind of approach to where he and Redford basically came, conceived of the candidate together and then hired a screenwriter to write their ideas down more or less. And then he won an Oscar for it. But then w- wasn't when it based time goes on that on, guy's book? I thought the candidate was based on a, on a book. Not based on a book. It won best original screenplay. What is the one that's based on? It's 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 loosely based on. Oh, uh, never mind, never mind. I'm fucking it up with downhill racer. Cut all of it's, this. Forget it's, it. It's it's loosely based on a yeah. It's loosely based on like a real guy that's not based on a book. At any rate, as time goes by though, and he's not getting this recognition, he's getting you know one or two uh, commercial successes with things like Bad News Bears and whatnot. But he's going to become more of a journeyman who's just picking up work for hire, like the island, or not getting credited <sighs> on student bodies and things like that. I mean, he's just obviously but, going to be doing those kind of movies. But, but but journeyman, he's never becomes a journeyman. I would say more often than not, his sensibility... I haven't seen The Island, but The Island doesn't seem like a journeyman kind of movie. Here's, but here's what, here's what I mean. His right. personality and sensibility interferes with movies that would be better off as generic Hollywood entertainment, right? Golden Child or Prime Cut or even Semi Tough would be good if they were directed by journeymen. His fucking hmm. personality gets in the way, like in Semitoff, how the book is basically, uh, you know, a, a ribald, body satirical comedy about pro football players. And he adds that entire self-help uh, satire subplot, which is not in the book, that feels like, again, him taking shots at the easiest stuff in the world, the new age um, self-positivity uh, movements and stuff like that, that he crams in there. You know, it, it's just the kind of thing where Golden Child would be watchable if it weren't him fucking it up. And there's a lot of movies like that. Um, I think that he, he, that kind of slightly weird Hollywood movie, it's not weird, they just feel off. And like when it hits with Fletch are bad news bears, right? It's very, very satisfying. But Smile or the Candidate, right? Are just these toothless satires that would be better without him in the way. Or, or he also, in the 80s, he starts working all the time with like stars treading water to indeterminate ends at like the height of their career with Wildcats. Couch trip, Golden Child, Fletch Lives, even the scout at the end, right? He's kind of catching these people at at a at the point of like creative exhaustion in some way too. And he doesn't help them. He's like getting in their way when they just need a journeyman to like write the ship, right? Mm, that's interesting. That's really interesting. I think you're getting to sort of what cr- both kind of creates the interesting weirdness of Prime Cut and makes it not a great movie at the same time. Because my, my thought going into this, the reason we've been talking about Michael Ritchie is because I've been thinking about Digstown a lot, which I, it's a movie I like a lot, yeah. but I like it for that offness. I like it for that push, Ritchie pushing up against the material. I wanted to read the book to see like, what was this before Michael Ritchie got his hands on it? You know, I, I think, 
again, those fa- that, that failure of his to, you know, the, him getting in his own way is what makes the movies interesting sometimes. Like you said, when they're, you know, when it was successful in Fletch and Bad News Bears. And, and I would say, I disagree with Smile. I like Smile a lot. And I, and I think it has that same kind of flavor. That's what kind of creates the interesting things about his movies. Sort of him tripping himself up is what's interesting about it. And why Prime Cut is so interesting is because, like you said, if this has been, has been directed by Richard Fleischer, for example, it might have been, you know, yeah. a, like a more, it would have been a, a more satisfying kind of straight up. I can Robert judge this Aldrich. movie. Yeah, yeah, I can like, I can like, I can look at this movie based on its genuine actual merits as opposed to like, what is going on in this film? Like, what is the problem what, here? What like, is the idea here? Yeah. You know, so the, that's what makes it, that's kind of what makes him interesting for me, I think. Yes. And the other thing I was thinking about with him, just to, I feel like all, I have all of this Michael Ritchie preamble before we actually get into prime cut. Cause I, I, he's somebody who definitely makes you, if you're a cinephile, Think about what, what is, the, what is this, you know? And I was thinking that he makes movies that stars need a comeback from. More than anything, he makes the movies where they represent, you got to come back from this if you're Goldie Hawn or Eddie Murphy, right? Or Chevy Chase. Uh, or it's just the end of their career. It's sort of, they're the low watermark. Even Robert Redford, Downhill Racer and The Candidate aren't financial successes at all. They're sort of surrounded by these big hits for him, like Barefoot in the Park and The Sting and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And these movies are barely making their money back, right? It's sort of the the Michael Ritchie films generally, Burt Reynolds even with Semi-Tough, that was that was pretty good hit, but not as the big of hits that Burt Reynolds have been having. They're, a Michael Ritchie movie is in general the low watermark that stars are trying to stay above. If you drop below the Ritchie line, your time as an A-lister is over, is what I think, is that the Michael <laughs> Ritchie line is, would Michael Ritchie direct me in a not that great movie? If you're below that line, you're no longer a star, right? That's like, that's the last level you can go to as an A-lister that you sort of have to recover from and not drop below. And if Fletch isn't a hit, Chevy Chase is done. You know what I mean? <laughs> that you've got to, you've got to, you've got to rise above the Richie line. And in fact, you know, it's, it's stuff you've got to come back from. And Wildcats definitely represents something like that, where there's like a three or five year span where, yeah. Yeah. It's my agent there. <laughs> I've just done this piece of shit, the island. You got to get me to Rio where I can let you after a underage girl immediately. <laughs> Michael Caine, though, is the one person who consistently operates below the Richie line with True. no repercussions. He's the one he's the one character who, who dips is, in and out. He, he has just lived his life below the Richie line, I think. I think that most I think it can't hurt him at all if you look at that filmography. It just it just doesn't affect him. But um, but he's Fair. also not past an, iconography. Yeah, he's not he's not an A lister in that way in the same way that like Hollywood works as, you know, sure, sure. you have, you have the big guys on top who are allowed to do whatever they want, you know? Yeah. Whereas Robin Williams would need his best of times to get out, get over the survivors. <laughs> well, exactly. It's, it's, you got to come back from the survivors if you're Walter Matthau and Robin Williams and the survivors, 
is pretty much the the end of Matthau too. Like that's him dropping below the Richie line with that movie. Right. You Next know? up is Pirates, right? For Polanski. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That he's not one of the hugest stars in the world going into the late 80s and early 90s. Is that that Walter Matthau was dipping below the Richie line there? <laughs> he has, it's funny to talk about him too, because he does, when you read interviews with people that have worked with him, um, like Matthau or Eddie Murphy, everybody seems perpetually let down by him. There doesn't seem to be a star that comes out going, I love Michael Ritchie. I would walk to the ends of the earth with him. You know what I mean? And he very rarely works with people multiple times as the star. That's what's interesting because Gene Hackman and Robert Redford are both in downhill racer. They're the two big stars in the racer and they're ascending right, right at the same time that this is all happening. Like their stars are sort of blowing up to full size uh, right around the time of downhill racer right? Richie then makes a movie each starring each of them in 72. He makes the candidate, he makes prime cut. And those are basically the only big stars that he's able to bring back uh, at all. I guess he does math out twice with bad news bears and the survivors. Bruce Stern twice. Bruce Stern, but Bruce Stern again. Not an A-lister. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I was just watching, you know, uh, an interview with Bruce Stern on the excellent fun city edition of the of, of smile that just came out on disc and yeah. um he does talk a lot more. he didn't knock richie at any point that i remember but he definitely talks more about how much he loves conrad hall and makes a big deal about how he brought him onto that that uh, shoot you know <laughs> that he was the reason that he was on there shooting the movie so he definitely seemed a lot more like that conrad hall he's the best he's the greatest yeah, it's very hard to find people who are really on the Michael Ritchie train. Mm-hmm. Uh, and critics in particular, it's funny, when you read reviews of this stuff, critics seem to take the strangest, the strangeness of his movies very personally. The reviews of his movies that are negative, if you find the negative reviews of the candidate. They're out of their mind, foaming at their mouth, negative. And that Vincent Canby thing we mentioned, Canby's review is nuts of Prime Cut. And then he turns around and writes a second piece about it. The second piece is talking about how he met a 19-year-old cinephile who annoyingly likes movies and has annoying opinion. He saw Michael Snow's wavelength snooze. Can you believe this idiot kid? that I'm going to dunk into oblivion in the most important newspaper in the world. And the premise of the, the piece is that he made a great movie called The Candidate, and then he made something that's not prime cut. It's a bunch of baloney. It's called prime cut. And, and it's really, in particular, like, feels wounded. He feels like he has to attack Michael Ritchie. And you see that in a bunch of reviewers that they feel like they have to attack him in a way of like, I believed in you and you let me down is how they feel. That's interesting. I, I need to read some more kind of the contemporary reviews of his stuff. My, my thought was always just that, you know, he wasn't just, a, he just wasn't a big enough fish. You made the ultimate comparison already. Uh, for me, there's a movie that comes out at the end of the 70s that should have been directed by one of those two guys, either Altman or Richie. And it seemed like 
either though would be would come out to be a different movie it was tailor-made for either of them yeah and incidentally after that movie they both had huge career slumps you know going into the 80s if one of them had directed this movie i think richie did not have a career slump he was his most successful in the 80s that's what's crazy well critical then yeah if you're talking you're talking yeah. about doing the island and not getting credit for yeah. student bodies you know that kind of you know until he makes fletch People definitely aren't thinking if, if people thought that Richie was like a big deal, they definitely stopped thinking that like yeah. until Fletch comes along. Anyway, the movie is Slapshot. Oh, directed, yeah. Directed by George Roy Hill. You know, it seems like the two mentalities kind of meeting in one movie. But that's what I think watching Prime Cut is George Roy Hill should have directed this. That's mm-hmm. what I think watching it is that it needed that kind of former Marine two fisted no nonsense approach that I that I really like. I just also happen to watch Bush Cassidy, but go on. But then that's the question is, would it be as interesting, right? If someone came in, would, if it, would Slapshot I, I, be as interesting? It's one of the greatest movies ever no, made. No, 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 no. Would Prime Cut be as interesting yeah. if George Roy Hill had made it? Um, because but, then yeah. because then you're talking about, you know, I, what I compare it to is The Professionals, right? Directed by Richard Brooks, yeah. another Lee Marvin starring movie, which like Prime Cut is a movie that I think of as like, oh yeah, The Professionals, that's good, right? That should be great. That should be like one of my favorite fucking movies, right? <laughs> Burt Lancaster, Lee Marvin, basically a uh, behind enemy lines uh, so suicide bunch, sort of, yeah, thing going on. And it's not, it's very generic and not very good. And so I think the question there is, you know, which do you prefer? Do you prefer a mismatched director who's going to deliver something weird and makes you like think about it all the time and want to see it again? Or something like the professionals which if i think about it for more than five minutes i think oh yeah i don't want to watch that again michael ritchie's movies aren't weird enough though for me they're not robert altman movies who i was also just by incidentally watching brewster mcleod and that is a weird fucking movie quartet is a weird fucking movie even cookie's fortune is a weird fucking movie and michael ritchie doesn't make movies that that weird i think part of no definitely not those are movies are weird by design you never, you never doubt that Altman is in control of everything that makes his movies interesting. Yeah, that he's doing the Altman thing. I yeah. don't, I, I am often puzzled by how much control Altman has or not. You know what I was thinking this about the Altman and um, Michael Ritchie comparison too is especially in Prime Cut and The Candidate. Michael Ritchie, I hate his fucking music cues. I hate the songs he uses ironically, right? And the candidate opens with like a sort of sarcastic political fanfare and Prime Cut has like the yokel yeehaw music on it, right? That are meant sort of ironically sarcastic use of that stuff. And I was thinking at the beginning of Long Goodbye and end of Long Goodbye, where he has Altman uses Hooray for Hollywood, right? And that's just as pointed and sarcastic and ironic as Michael Ritchie's music cues, but it's also haunting and beautiful and strange. Whereas Michael Ritchie's music cues are sledgehammer stupid, you know? And I think that that's one of like the big uh, dividing points is that Hooray for Hollywood becomes like eerie and weird in The Long Goodbye in a way that just like rock banjo stuff doesn't in Prime Cut. Like the moment where they're driving in the car right? And they're sort of putting their machine guns together as they're passing all these images of Heartland, right? 
the music cue is undermining that scene. That scene would be great if we just saw them looking out the windows at like farm boys and tractors and little girls playing with their dogs as they're like Chicago guys putting machine guns together. But he has to stomp on it with that music cue and just kick the life out of what might be weird about it. In general, I'm anti-satire in movies, basically. I yes. don't think you can do satire without making it you know, an irritatingly obvious and undermining the whole thing. And I think Altman has been guilty of that. I think Buffalo yes. Bill and The Player are two of his uh, most unsuccessful films, in my opinion, because they're too broad and too obvious. You know, So I think that that's something that anyone could fall prey to but yeah you're and right especially I think richie richie's movies richie's are satires special. but they attack something so broad and imprecise that just like i feel like virtually anyone can see something of themselves in the things he's attacking in a very broad way it's it pulls the life out of interesting characters constantly you know and makes them like in the candidate where where the the character can't exist because the satirical points are too broad and imprecise you know, and it's just, I think that's also why critics don't like him is they feel attacked. There's a review of the candidate. I can't remember who wrote it, but the reviewer is freaking out about Robert Redford's resemblance to Robert Kennedy. And her mm. review is basically like, can you believe they did shit this fucking tasteless, right? Like, can you fucking believe these assholes? Right. And I don't think it's taking any shots at the Kennedys. I don't get that impression when I watch the movie, but it is so vague. And he does have a little bit of an RFK hairstyle in it that you can just feel like he's attacking you when you watch any of these movies because they're not precise. Um, they're just sort of these empty agreed upon targets. Yeah. And then also being the Democratic candidate and having the father with the influence. I mean, yeah, there's yeah. Kennedy connections, but you're right. I get what you're saying. I think a movie like Smile works because. Smile is the best of his satires. Yeah. Way, yeah. I, I think it works because you get involved in it, you know, because that there, Richie understands, I think, that movies about sports competition or something where there's going to be a winner at the end, American audiences aren't going to be able to help but, like, say, uh, but root for the root for the hero or hope that the person comes through at the end, you know, they win the competition. So you kind of get involved, even though the whole point of smile is, you know, this is all complete. It's completely useless. And, you know, this is really is doing nothing for any of these characters. And then some of them realize that you can't help but kind of being absorbed. Like, Ooh, isn't that O2 going to win at the end? You know, sort of like feel getting that involvement. Like he understands like the form format of that kind of a movie. And that, you know, you're going to be able to hook people in the journey of Robert Redford in the candidate, even if, you know, at the end, it's not, again, it's not about winning if this character is going to come through and win the election. That's not, you know, sort of the whole basic idea of the movie. And that's where he's kind of, you know, stepping on his own toe to say, you know, well, I, you know, just so you know, it's not about that. I'm aware of that. But what I'm trying to say is that the whole system is, you know, something that just is immutable and is never going to be changed by any idealistic young democratic candidate. Don't you think though, what works about smile is not anything Richie does, but it's all Bruce Stern. Well, Bruce Stern's a huge part of it. Obviously he's fantastic. I think that movie's good because of Bruce Dern. I think the whole really? cast of, I think the whole cast actually is really yes. good. Yes. Everybody's good, but it's got, it's got that central performance that that anchors it down. Uh, that's saying, I mean, that's, you know, <laughs> I 
that's something the movie's got going for it. And, you know, I think there aren't jokes that land particularly well, but you know, like you said, the performances make you enjoy the movie. So yeah, I completely, yeah, I agree with that. So with prime cut, is Talk this on red hall, obviously is well, it not prime cut who was shot by a, a total journeyman guy, the guy who shot up in smoke and gangster wars there's really it's an incredibly gorgeous movie but it was it's amazing by... looking those locations and the wheat that... fields and the, the yeah the fields of flowers and the giant skies Did, but that leads into my question about prime cut and the original andre malro quote isn't prime cut's entire problem that it's trying to make a masterpiece out of rubbish isn't that sort of michael ritchie's problem in general is that rather than let things be Hollywood entertainments, he's trying to make them masterpieces, especially in the 70s. Don't you think Prime Ooh, Cut I, is I trying to be too halfway good right? I think you're halfway yeah. right. I think that's part of the problem. I think the other problem is just he's not an action director. So the scenes with gunplay and fighting come off awkward. You know, I mean, if he had a journeyman director in there, I think that he would do a better job at those scenes. But again, those scenes are interesting because they're awkward. Yeah, I actually quite like the ending a lot. Uh, uh, the ending where they are going to save Sissy Spacek, right? It's the, the Chicago mob is going in on the farm boys, the Irish mob, and they go into a huge, beautiful field of sunflowers outside of a farm. And they're going to, to have the shootout in this surrounded by all these sunflowers, right? And one of the things that I like is that it is on theme where you have these beautiful sunflowers being raised for commercial consumption. It's the moment when the theme and the filmmaking comes together, right? The music doesn't get in the way. It's classic Lalo Schifrin action thriller music, right? And it's about beauty as a commercial product and men with guns fighting amidst it, right? Which ties into the sex trafficking. And it's actually a, a kind of lovely scene there. And the, I think it's the best part of the movie. It's the one moment when the movie works to me is that final shootout and feels like it should be. Also the scene, obviously the most famous scene where the thresher is chasing them across the field and it's just impossibly gorgeous. Although I think that ends on such a goofball note that it's hard for me to to like that scene as much where it's a very goofball decision to have the car run into the thresher yeah they're saved by their their cronies lee marvin sissy spacek are trying to get away they're running across this open field with a thresher coming after them their cronies drive their car into the thresher and jump out and then the thresher you know uh eats the car and spits it out in the hay bale which is just all of this is absurd to the point of cartoonishness like a thresher is not going to tear up a car and put it into a hay bale, you know, or even catch up with Lee Marvin and see space. Like yeah. They're running away from it. Yeah. It definitely has a like constantly like, you know, sort of a Jason walking after people on Friday, the 13th feeling like, <laughs> how is it still close? They've been but, running. But, but trying to be the crop duster scene from North by Northwest, you know, like there's any actual danger, you know, they, there's actually a chance that, this thing could kill them at any point. Yeah. But that's, that's what I mean too, though, is that, you know, these guys who are running around with him that he brings down to Kansas with him, I never get a sense of who they are. I mean, I feel like, you know, in most movies like this, you'd have a Richard Jekyll or a Charles Bronson as a sidekick, someone who, you know, you kind of identify with and, you know, a Daniel is... Couchy, if you're making it in France. And I think one of these guys is Eddie Egan. Is that right? The French connection guy, he plays somebody in the movie. I think he's one of the, 
yeah. Chicago guys. I thought I thought he was the main Chicago guy though. Oh, okay, maybe he is. All right, yeah, I, yeah. I couldn't identify who he was. But anyway, uh, but but they're kind of completely bland. Writer of badge uh, 373, you mean? Right, the badge <laughs> 373 guy. Uh, yeah, so I mean, why send Lee Marvin down with a couple of guys who are just going to be in the background and not really do anything? Even the driver, uh, Shay, the guy who, you know, talks about Marvin saving his life, just doesn't, you know, doesn't Especially- become a very interest. Yeah. Especially when in the most, my favorite scene in the movie is early on when he picks up the kid because apparently these these farmers have killed so many of the Irish enforcers that they're now sending like a guy who looks like 17 along with Lee Marvin, right? And the line is like, he's green, but he'll be able to do it. It's the great scene where they go to pick him up to take him on this road trip and his mom and his brothers and sisters are all very excited because Devlin. Lee Marvin's character is going to be there. And he walks down to the car and says to Lee Marvin, hey, could you come up and say hi to my mom? Uh, she, she'd really appreciate it. And Lee Marvin's like, okay, I guess I'll do this. And he runs up the stairs to his mom and is like, hey, Devlin wants to meet you. She's like, wow, he wants to meet me. And he sort of plays them off each other and they have an awkward little moment. It's a really great character moment scene for what it means to this kid. And there's no... there's a joke to it. There's a gag of that. He's lying, but it's not satire. It's not broad humor. It's just like very interesting character based humor and situational based humor. And you're absolutely right. Then it doesn't do like, I don't even remember what happens to that kid. He probably gets killed, right? They all get killed or they don't get killed. They get every time I, every time I watch the movie, I never remember what happens to any of those guys. He's in the car when the thresher happens. He's not. It, there's just one they, of the guys gets killed under a bleacher is the only thing I can say for sure. It just doesn't. It doesn't. Those characters don't mean anything. They're non-characters, you know. Yeah. And, no. Exactly. I, I mean, they're a little bit better than the kind of faceless uh, goons that run around working for Marianne with like the the overalls and like the double barrel shotgun that just kind of like running all over the place like crazy. Uh, those are some pretty generic goons, but yeah, I mean, those should be more characters, you know, they should, should spend less time with him in space tech, which is something that, and again, this is kind of Lee Marvin jumping in to say he did not want that to be a romantic relationship. He didn't want them to go to bed together. I guess yeah. that was originally in this, in the script, which good, you know, we don't need yeah. to see that scene. I mean, Lee Marvin is not, someone who should be having romantic interest in his movies anyway, unless it's, you know, one of those regrets, you know, what could have been John Moreau type yeah. stuff in Monty Walsh. We don't need to see him, you know, hooking up with 18 year old Sissy Spacek. Uh, but at any rate, uh, so much time is spent on it. And she's just becomes at the end a foil for, you know, or, or, or a device, you know, for the bad guys to kidnap and for a reason for him to want to go and save her. And it could have spent a lot more time, developing some of the other interesting characters my favorite scene is uh gene hackman and one sec gene hackman and gregory walcott his weenie brothers yeah. when they get into like the little fight you know as the like the accountants are like trying to like <laughs> figure out all the business stuff and they're just grab, they grabbing start each other start... it's the best scene in the movie you're yeah, absolutely yeah, right where they're where slamming they each other's heads into the wall and everything and neither of them will relent and it's just like wow these are the villains these are the, like the horrible heartless villains who run or work with an orphanage that turns women into doped up prostitutes and then sell them and it's in so offense and so you rough. love them in that moment yes 
it turns into like a Harmony Corinne movie for a split second. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, it does. It really does. Do you know what? Do you know what Greg Walcott's claim to fame is? Being in Plan Nine from Outer Space. And Ed Wood. He's in both. He's a candy for yeah, 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 yeah. Of course. Yeah. yeah. No, that's very cool. No, I like him in this movie a lot. Yeah, but you're right that that the sissy space six stuff plays so weird. This movie's narrative structure is all fucked up for starters, uh, which is that when Devlin gets there, it's not clear what the plan is. There's no plan. He's just going to show up and sort of shake things up. It's not clear how what he's intending to do, what goals he's trying to achieve. And so since there's no narrative drive to what he's going to do when he's there, it does, the main film gets completely sidelined by that queasy pseudo romance with Sissy Spacek, where like he takes her out to a fancy dinner, they go to the fair together, he protects her from a creep. It's like very standard white knight film cliches, uh, almost it's interesting that Lee Marvin didn't want that in there because it, again, it's Michael Ritchie. So it feels like it's almost to a point where it's going to be a knowing satire of those cliches. But that's, again, it's the Ritchie problem of like, is this a cliche or is it a commentary on the cliche? He even, Lee Marvin even carries Sissy Spacek down the stairs at the end when she's in a white dress and it's like her taking a bride over the threshold. There's all of this sort of imagery of it that's, that's an, totally poor taste because she's like a sex slave whose sister is still a sex slave and has just been gang raped for a bunch of nickels right one of this incredibly horrifying scenes in film history right one of the truly like you got to get this out of here but the kind of thing i would say journeymen were notorious for leaving in movies at this time (laughs) you know it sort of shocks me more that that lee marvin ends it uh, or that uh, Michael Ritchie keeps it in there than it would if Robert Aldridge had kept it in there, you yeah, know. Um, yeah. But what? But also ask, is yeah. Well, let me just ask you the. Yeah, I was going to ask you, but you yeah. ask me. <laughs> if the whole questions. if the whole point of the SpaceX character is you know purity, but sissy SpaceX in a nutshell, that must yeah. be defended. You know, this like the idea of womanhood being victimized, and yeah. you know, someone who has to come in and, and put a stop to it. Why add the character of Clarabelle, who we find out, Clarabelle, what, the Disney cow, you know, uh, cartoon character, great naming <laughs> there, um, who it turns out set, every, you know, set everything in motion by being the one who convinced Marianne not to pay back Chicago and therefore bring Lee Marvin down on them for kicks, more or less, that like she wants to see him again. She's still got the hots for Lee Marvin and she wants him to come down and take out Gene Hackman because she's bored or something and basically set it up as fucking bitch you know evil women you know these manipulative conniving harlots you know sitting on their boat making up all these things yeah just for fun because here's the thing again this is this is the michael ritchie problem where there's a very broad obvious satirical point that doesn't get elaborated on and never becomes complex right you know gene hackman has the line cow flesh girl flesh all the same to me what they're buying i'm selling and that's a very simple satirical point these guys they treat women like me and that's bad right but it doesn't go beyond that you know the the bad guys are sort of generic stock characters who represent like the hidden truth about society like this is the way society is actually run but there's also there's also something strange where 
it seems completely unconcerned about sentient animals being treated like meat, like animals being treated like meat, which sort of makes me go, well, that seems like an obvious point to elaborate upon is what's the dividing line between meat and humanity, right? And even the final line of the movie is about that, but it doesn't really seem to have it on its mind. And then the idea of women being treated like meat, but it does sort of put them back into like, you know, the standard regressive patriarchal mother whore complex, right? That mm. like there's there's innocence to be defended and innocence can be defiled and all that, but it doesn't it doesn't have much of an idea beyond they're treating these ladies like meat, cow flesh, girl flesh. It's all the same to me. It doesn't develop beyond that at all. And that's what I feel like happens over and over in Michael Ritchie's movies, that it doesn't, it has like this big broad point that it doesn't develop. And I do find it so strange that the movie tries to position Devlin as a humanist actor but he's just there to be a mob enforcer, right? right? Like, are we supposed to believe the Chicago mob isn't involved in heroin and prostitution? That this is like <laughs> the first he's ever heard of getting prostitutes hooked on heroin? Perhaps you know? the one step they haven't taken is setting up an orphanage in Nebraska with, I can't emphasize enough, a woman who raises young girls so that she can sell them into sexual slavery in Kansas. And the movie literally ends with them being set free from this place and then grazing in a field (laughs) is the last shot of the movie. (laughs) But that, but that final scene, which feels so tacked on, right? Like somebody said, well, what happens to the other girls in the orphanage? Well, sissy SpaceX goes and punches the lady running the orphanage. It feels so tacked on. It almost feels like it's shitting on the movie's idea of a regular narrative like this kind of almost like, Oh, well that ends well, you know, and just that final line about like, Chicago it's windy and calm and peaceful as any place anywhere like it it feels like what I'm saying of like isn't he coming from a place that's just as awful as this place like but it's but it doesn't make any sense it's it's a such a sudden reversal uh and it doesn't and its heart is not in it that you again go like is this satire is he trying to it's just that that whisper quiet light as air bucket of smoke satire that he does Hmm. where it's what are you trying to have me carry around here you know like what are you getting at because i agree with the idea that the chicago mob is probably as bad as the farmland mob and that this ending is uh, almost in need of ridicule this all's well that ends well ending but your movie's not saying it up until this moment your movie is disagreeing with the ending you're giving it and you've also given it this straight face ending. It's just yeah, you're making journey... me realize the perfect director probably would have been John Flynn, right? A guy yes. who can sell a scene where Seagal catches up with the asshole who dumped the dog and kicks him in the nuts as a coda to the end of the movie. <laughs> yes, but also just that is willing to believe in that happy ending too. You know, yeah, yeah that's what I mean. Just kind of willing to to not undercut it in some way. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's and I also watched this movie too, where it doesn't elaborate on themes that I feel like are second nature to me at this point. Like many of my very favorite movies are based around the theme of like exploring 
humans as meat and the body as meat in some way, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Wiseman's Meat, um, the the chicken story in Animal Lover's Book of Beastly Murder, Svenkmeyer's Faust. They're all specifically and explicitly about what is the relationship between meat and a living being? At what point does organic material become imbued with life and lose it, right? Can mm-hmm. it, is it taken out by the, by the heroin, these drugged out girls that are just reduced to flesh and reduced to, to, or the other mobsters reduced to being pure hot dogs, you know, like they're getting butchered, you know? It doesn't, Paul, Ver- Paul Verhoeven has this theme in his movies and it's always really satisfying. Yeah, and it doesn't elaborate on them. And all of those things I talk about have very detailed, complex ideas about those things. And this really doesn't go beyond like, you know, there are some bad guys who think cow flesh and girl flesh is all the same. And it's like, yeah, those guys seem really bad. I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't like them. I don't know that anyone's on their side in this whole wide world. They probably hate themselves a fair amount. You know, too. Like I don't, <laughs> I don't know what you're you're getting at with this empty truism. You know, beyond beyond like meat and things we get from cows is just a weird thing to be faced with. The milk lady at the fair who offers Lee Marvin, you know, the milk from the plastic cow udder. Yeah, because she thinks such, he's a judge. Yeah, but she comes off as such a bizarre weirdo. She's pr- practically out of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. this kind of character and i think that the only probably the only idea that he has the only thing he wants to enforce in this is jesus do you ever think about where the food and the things we drink come from it's fucking weird if you know you're looking at it in yeah. the face and the people who are excited to bring this to you are weird people like this cow this milk lady at the fair yeah and then the kids who were shocked when they take their their winning calf away to immediately slaughter and, you know, turn into a hamburger, you know, and are upset. This idea that like, you know, no, this is a place where animals are food and that's it. And I guess the logical conclusion that, well, we treat our women the same way. Why not? It's, it's just very, it's very strange. You know, it gets said of Michael Ritchie a lot with those early movies that like he's directing in a documentary style. If you read any, Uh, review of the candidate they talk about the pseudo documentary style and i don't that's always way overstated when reviews say that but i do think that he as a filmmaker if you had to define him he has no elegance as a filmmaker he's not really capable of elegance that's why the thresher scene is shows so shocking is that it's such an elegant scene up until again the goofball ending you know where he doesn't do that and he's a filmmaker that i think if you're going to do satire it either needs to be rabid not toothless like he is it needs to have that altman acidity and and just ruthlessness that altman's capable of or it needs to have some kind of elegance to it you know it has to need some kind of of cleverness and aesthetic pleasures that his movies don't really have and and which altman's movies frequently do i mean altman's better than him on on two two levels hitting them from both both directions at it and i think that when it works when he's a very plain filmmaker in like bad news bears and fletch right that are unadorned and they just sort of let the narrative unfold in front of them with no urgency. It is really satisfying. You can really talk yourself into the idea like this guy's really on to something here, you know? And, mm-hmm. and I think that that's the temptation with all of his movies is, is 
you can talk yourself into them more than maybe any other filmmaker. He sort of entices you to talk yourself into these movies in some way. Yeah. Yeah. Characters too just kick back against the weirdness. The scene in, in smile where they try to initiate the guy into, you know, their, uh, their moose lodge cult or whatever it is, you know, and they want him to kiss the ass of a raw chicken. That's sort of the initiation that they try to get him to do. (laughs) And his, you know, character being like, this is the weirdest and creepiest fucking thing I've ever been involved with. Why is everyone acting like it's not a big deal? Yeah. You know, I think maybe that might also be a little bit at the center of prime cut and the, the milk lady, things like that are these reasonable characters who would like, you know, see these things and think this is fucking weird. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, I will I will say one thing I do want to say, and I want to shift a little bit to talking about what I like about this movie a little bit, because I do think it's an interesting movie and there is likable stuff in it. You mentioned uh, a few things we like, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, but like Gene Hackman and Lee Marvin rule and they rule in this movie. They're both cast very interestingly and give very classic Gene Hackman and Lee Marvin performances. If you want like like the platonic ideal of Lee Marvin and Gene Hackman, these movies, it really delivers two of them. And, and this is both of them is sort of at the top of their game too. This is Hackman the year after French connection, right before Scarecrow and the conversation, like you're getting Gene Hackman at the full height of his powers. Um, and, you know, then you also have Lee Marvin who famously started out as a character actor and then 65 did Cat Baloo and became a real star. He has Dirty Dozen and Point Blank in 67. That's probably the high water uh, mark for him. But this is still Lee Marvin very close to the total height of his career. Um, He actually made this movie the same year as Pocket Money with Paul Newman. And do you know what Pocket Money is most famous for, of course? Now... Um uh, other than apps totally bombing, no what? Pocket Money is the reason uh, Truffaut famously had to change the title of uh, Larson uh, right. de Poche, right? And Spielberg suggested the change to the title from Pocket Money to Small Change small on change. the just set. A, just of a small Close change on this part. But that's uh, but Spielberg and Truffaut. That's that's all you got with Pocket Money. Apparently, <laughs> that's how it went down. I wasn't fucking there, John. I don't know. I'm repeating <laughs> stories I've heard. But this is also, but you're getting Lee Marvin and Gene Hackman at their height. This movie, if you like them, this movie is worth seeing for them and seeing their scenes together and seeing them do their oh, fucking thing, you know? Yeah. And uh, and they're both actors I, I like quite a bit, you know? So I don't, I don't, <laughs> I enjoy watching this movie for that. But again, also you hear about it's where it is and what it is. And Sissy Spacek's great in it too. Sissy sure. Spacek is, is not an actress I think of often. She's just not somebody I've connected with as an actor. And so every time I see her in a movie, see her in a movie, I'm like, oh, she's fucking great. <laughs> oh, she's absolutely <laughs> fucking great in this movie. And she does a lot with a really thankless, underwritten, sketchy, idiotic character in this movie. She she breathes life and charm into something that is inherently sort of gross and unpleasant and underwritten and not not thinking it through correctly. Um, And this actually makes me think about how early in his career, right? He, I think the seventies movies generally are looked upon better because he 
smartly gets out of the way of his actors. So he's always working with people like Robert Redford and Bruce Stern and Burt Reynolds and Lee Marvin at the height of their powers. And he's sort of getting out of their way and let it, Chris Christopherson, you know, letting them do their thing, right? And so those movies are fondly remembered because he lets those great actors fully be themselves and fully do their thing, right? In the 80s, he does that, but with a bunch of actors who it is really not smart to get out of the way of, with Goldie Hawn and Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd and even Chevy Chase. These Robin are all, Williams. Robin Williams. These are all actors who have made really disastrous decisions throughout their careers and who are capable of just making the worst decisions and farting out these terrible flops, Right. And all of the movies he makes with these people feel like them at their most self-defeating and sort of um, least ambitious, most self-defeating, most ill-considered and sort of craven. You know, he makes mm. all these movies with them that feel unadventurous and ego inflated in some way and just a bad idea. And I think that that's really the only difference between his 70s and his 80s movies is that he's lucky to work with actors who you should let do their thing in the 70s. And then in the 80s, he works with a bunch of actors that it's a very bad idea to let do their thing. I can't imagine any director after Swing Shift would want to, you know, not let Goldie Hawn do her thing for fear of, you know, getting locked out of the editing room. And just, and I did, I did rewatch both the, the Demi cut and the real cut recently. And it is, it goes from being one of Demi's five best movies to being the worst movie he ever made. And I'm including Citizens Band with that. Like it really flies off a cliff that much. It's incredible how much she screws it up. Yeah. I, it's, it's interesting. Again, there's, you know, kind of the, the knowledge that Lee Marvin did not get along with Richie, you know, which on the one hand, again, since it really does feel like a Lee Marvin character walking into a Mike Ritchie film and, not, and disapproving of it. Yeah. Seems like the only way it could have gone down. But Lee Marvin is one of the few, you know, movie stars who to me is his own auteur, you know, definitely yeah. a movie is that director's plus Lee Marvin's. And so he's obviously going to bring the Lee Marvin that's to a Lee Marvin starring film. It feels like he's doing what his character is doing in the movie. That he's coming into a Lee Marvin movie. Uh, he's coming into a Michael Ritchie movie and smashing it up. He's smashing <laughs> up. He's smashing up the organization that Michael Ritchie's trying to run here. He's coming in and kicking everybody around. And Gene Hackman does an amazing job of seeming like an authority, you know, and like king of his own, you know, little hill. At the same time, being fucking pissed, terrified of Lee Marvin, you know, giving these threats that seem incredibly hollow. <laughs> and really, I mean, it seems like it you know, well, he's, great. he's doing everything he can to like kind of, you know, stand shoulder to shoulder with him. But you can tell when Lee Marvin is... slaps him at the beginning in front of everybody where he's like the big man on campus. He's the cock of the walk at running the, the uh, sex slave auction. And Lee Marvin just slaps him in his fucking face. It's amazing. His reaction's amazing. The scene is amazing. It's great. Yeah, because Mary Ed reacts to everything with this kind of, you know, amused disinterest he seems to think that he's invincible 
And Lee yeah. Marvin is just there to tell him that ain't the case. So There's their dynamic the, throughout the film is really impressive. Their exchange is great where Marianne responds by going, you haven't changed a bit, Nick. And Lee Marvin going, nobody does, not where it counts, which is such like a, somebody's trying to be affable with you and you destroy them by saying, I still have your number. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. like the hardest, like, don't forget, I'm still me and you're still you, you know? And I could have Clarabelle the moment I want it. Yeah, you know, kind of thing. Like, <laughs> I'm still Lee Marvin. Don't ever forget it. <laughs> and his reaction when Weenie throws a pitchfork into the side of the car, which is like a, a slight, like, I need to, you know, I'm assessing the situation. No, it's nothing. Let's get out of here. You know, it's, <laughs> only Lee Marvin can pull something like that off. It's terrific. Yeah, it's, it's, there's a lot of great stuff in this movie. I also do enjoy the scene where she takes, he takes Sissy Spacek out to dinner at the fancy restaurant and she's got a, doesn't know which spoon to use for the soup and does the two things that I was always taught. You look to your host when you don't know which spoon to use and you start on the outside. So it's always going to be laid out. You start with the furthest one out and you look to the, the guy, but there's, there's interesting little touches like that throughout it. You know, it's, it, it's a movie that again, like all of Michael Ritchie movies where even if it's bad, it's interesting, you know, that, mm -hmm. that, Again, he made many, many more bad movies than good ones, but many, many more interesting ones than uninteresting ones. And I think this might, this is the reason I want to talk about this one is I just feel like it's the, the height of that, of that kind of, this is an interesting, even though it's bad kind of height of it. And it's so interesting that you're tempted to call it good. I think this is a movie that again, you will hear people really argue for these numbskull 19 year olds in New York city. will call it better. These kids who probably think Sergio Leone is an auteur. Can you believe these idiot kids that, uh, that, that you are tempted to kind of talk to yourself, yourself into it being an auteur. You this know? movie, this movie is good. It's biggest problem is that it should be great. Yeah. And it, and it, yeah, but again, but again, there's that thing where it's like <laughs> I, I don't want to go back and see if the professionals, you know, if I like it more this time. I know I won't. I yeah. go back to Prime Cut every time, thinking I'm going to like it more this time. Like it's just something's going to work for me this time, and I'm going to like totally engage with it. And I'm going to be like, oh, this is like top five Lee Marvin. This is you know a movie that deserves to be considered one of the best crime films of the early '70s. I mean, a lot of people have you know compared it to Parker novels, which is absurd. But you know, at the same time, like. It should be as great as a Parker story, you know? Yeah. Don't you, don't, well, I want to talk about the script and the screenwriter a little bit too, uh, because it's by Robert Dylan, who wrote your favorite X, X the man with X-ray eyes. I know a movie that you really love an intense amount. Um, I do. But I, this is not sarcasm. I'm saying that I know you love this movie, John. <laughs> you're right, you're correct. I, I know my tone was as hard to read as a Michael Ritchie movie. <laughs> But it's a screenwriter. I know you wrote a movie you like. Um, but the main thing he wrote were Frankie and Annette beach party movies, right? And he also, you know, he's very much a journeyman. Um, he also wrote the movie that killed Milius's career, Flight of the Intruder. Like John Milius is done after Flight of the Intruder. So Ouch. he wrote that too. Uh, he seems like a writer. Was, wasn't Milius done before then? 
That's is, the, is it Flight of the Intruder? That that's his the, last theatrical That's the one that seals the coffin. Yeah. yeah, that's that's like you're you're not you don't matter anymore. Is yeah. that one? Yeah. That's when he passes below the Richie line. <laughs> but I was thinking about Robert Dylan, who you look at what he's written, and it's a bunch of flops, and he he seems like poison, like critical and box office poison, but a very specific kind of poison where it's the ambition and thoughtfulness that are what kill it in some way that again, like Richie, if he just did the assignment, it wouldn't have been a problem, but he's trying to make it good in some way. And that's, and that's what, that's what fucks it all up. He co-wrote the old dark house. People love that movie. And he uh, wrote, French Connection 2, which I know yeah. my friend Tony Stella is a big fan. Of. I know these are interesting movies he wrote, but also like French Connection 2 was not a good thing for people involved. And he wrote 99 and 44 and 100th percent dead, which yeah. is another movie that's like he wrote Revolution. These are movies that like have ambition. Frankie, Frankenheimer was going under the Richie line <laughs> in the 70s for sure. Yeah. But just where these movies have an ambition to be more interesting and more complicated and they might have been served by being more regular you know Mm -hmm. he's he's in in a michael ritchie way sort of his perfect match he's sort of michael ritchie's soulmate in some way (laughs) that uh it's it's sort of hard to believe they don't um have have more in common or or uh don't uh it's not hard to believe they don't synergize better. It's easy to believe they don't synergize very well. <laughs> and one thing that we haven't talked about, this movie has very neo-noir dialogue. It's, it's just that neo-noir overwrought, overwritten dialogue. Like someday they're going to boil that town down for fat, which I actually enjoy. Uh, I'm very much from the Hal Hartley Preston Sturgis School of Dialogue. Doesn't need to sound like something that would ever come out of a real be- human being's mouth. Does the dialogue work for you in this movie or is it another knock against it? Well, one thing that I noticed watching it this time is the lack of dialogue. Actually, there are long sequences where there's not really any meaningful exchange between characters, uh, surprisingly. And then when it does come down to the like scenes with one or two people, whether it's uh, Lee Marvin talking to Hackman or Clarabelle, whatever it might be, those those bits of pulpy kind of neo-noir dialogue kind of stand out even more because of the long stretches of of quiet throughout the movie yeah although he does slather it in a bunch of bad music i would say quiet is overstating it although although i guess dialogueless is what i'm trying to say yeah you know what i love at the beginning is the way the cows moos are all used as like a musical cue it's at the beginning, mm-hmm, the mooing right. of the cows plays almost like a choral. And I'm like, oh, that's really clever and awesome. Again, I'm going to love this movie. Every time you walk into these, the, this movie thinking you're going to like it, you know? Yeah, it is but... exactly like The Professionals. Every time you put it on, you're like, this is going to be great. I'm going to love this. But nobody could sell that kind of dialogue better than Lee Marvin. So when it's coming out of his mouth, no problem. <laughs> and Gene Hackman does great with it too. Gene Hackman yeah. can really make that kind of uh, verbose dialogue, uh, tough guy dialogue, sound very convincing and and uh, nuanced and interesting in some way. Well, yeah, he does a great thing. And it, this is something he does a lot, actually, in his movies where 
he's very jovial and like very amiable towards other people. He's slapping them on the back and then he gets real quiet all of a sudden, you know, and it's yeah. just like the, just, he just raises that intense meter by, you know, three or four degrees. And it's just like, Ooh, you just feel that chill come in and it's incredibly effective thing that he does. Yeah. Dangerously full of shit characters who you sort of get a creeping realization of, is he full of shit? That's like the classic hackman, like, doesn't give a a shit that he's full of shit and then he's going to let you know i know i'm full of shit here's the real deal you know yeah the blowhard you think this guy's all hot air but you realize oh no he's actually the real deal (laughs) uh i think yeah when when all when almost all he has to do when he when he's up against lee marvin is try (laughs) desperately act like he's got the upper hand that you know the lee marvin is nothing but you know a fly that he can swat away when in fact they both know that you know he's fucked here, that this is the worst possible guy he can go up against. <laughs> it's true. Again, talking about it, I I have affection for this movie, which is why I wanted to talk about it, and I have way more affection for it than I do for virtually any other Michael Ritchie movie, except for the ones that are I think everybody agrees are objectively satisfying like Bad News Bears and Fletch, you know, although I'm not super bananas for those movies the way a lot of people are. And maybe I don't have affection for those movies. Maybe I simply like them because they're good movies. Fletch in particular, we haven't talked about it very much. Fletch seems like a beautiful accident, yeah. you know, like that, that movie. And, and the Fletch books are something I've always wanted to get into. I still haven't really gotten to read many of them just to kind of see like, what was this character? What was the idea? Like, what are the books like compared to the movie? Because it just seems like bringing Chevy Chase in to play this character totally gummed up the works in a beautiful, weird way, you know? Yeah, especially when they make Fletch Lives and it's entirely different and entirely terrible. It's yeah. It feels like Fletch didn't happen on purpose because when given an opportunity to try it again, they made something ludicrously different and no good whatsoever. And just, it doesn't even seem like it was made by the same people. It feels like when they they bring in some some total hack, you know, to do the sequel. Yeah, I, I think if anything's going to be written on Michael Ritchie's cough, uh, his uh, tombstone, it'll be the director of Fletch and Fletch Lips. <laughs> like a little like two like three dots and Fletch lives he he lived as he died um because if you're trying to sell someone Michael Ritchie and your argument is he made Fletch you're gonna get hit right back with and it's fucking sequel and Fletch lives (laughs) and he made and Bad News Bears is great and also feels similarly the ramshackle quality of it feels good then in that movie as well it, it also feels like this plays the way it's supposed to play but again you can't pinpoint it feels illusory to pinpoint richie's qualities that are evasive and, and incomplete in his other films as coming together in those movies it feels it feels tempting to say those are him fully realizing his vision whereas i think his full vision is actually something more like the candidate I really do. I feel like- I would 100% agree. I would say The Candidate is the most Richie movie, at least in terms of like what I think he would consider a 100% successful uh, example of his voice coming through in a film. It would be it would look like The Candidate. It wouldn't look like Fletch. 
uh, or even the Bad News Bears. It certainly wouldn't look like Digstown or Prime Cut, you know? Yeah. And Digstown is one we've touched on a little. Digstown is a movie that has been a personal favorite of me and you for years, a touchstone movie for a long time. I didn't even realize it was Michael Ritchie till we went to record this podcast. It just didn't even register in my brain (laughs) ever. It just doesn't penetrate my consciousness. And that's that's, that's weirdly the movie that keeps me coming back to Ritchie, you know, to want to say, I got to get, I got to figure this out. You know, that's the movie that I'm always the most intrigued by. And uh, we, we need it on the record on the podcast somehow, which is that something you and I have always talked about is the commercial for Digstown which it's like the audience reaction commercial where it says this movie will make you want to stand up and cheer. And then it cuts to like a stage shot of the audience watching Digstown and standing up and cheering in the theater and like throwing their popcorn up. Right. This is something you and I both have a memory of that we've discussed a lot in going to do prep for this podcast. I cannot find this commercial. It does not exist. I don't know where it came from or what it is. If you have access to the Digstown audience reaction commercial, John and I would love to see it because we met in college. We talked about that commercial together. We didn't have this fake shared (laughs) memory, this shared hallucination of the Digstown because I always thought about how funny it is. Because I need you to find out. (laughs) I I need you to find out they exist. I know. I know. I love Digstown. And I was like, I, I, did kind of stand up and cheer when I watched Digstown, although not in like this ludicrous because it's also staged. It's not like a real audience. It's just like some dude dressed like James Woods is in the movie, like standing up at, you know, at Lou Gossett yeah. Jr. But, <laughs> yeah. but I also think Digstown is totally personality free for Michael, for Michael Ritchie, except for one moment, which is the quintessential Michael Ritchie moment. Did you spot it as well? No, tell me what it is. It's when he's talking about Bruce Stern is going around to the 10 guys that are going to fight Louis Gossett Jr. The setup for the movie is they make James Woods makes a bet with Bruce Stern that Lou Gossett Jr., this boxer, can beat up 10 guys in one day, win 10 boxing matches in one day. And Bruce Stern's got all of his boxers together and he gives them a speech about how you're going to pound his brains in and beat him to death and getting them all right up. And he says, okay, now everybody come in for a prayer together, right? That joke is in The Candidate, where the Republican politician who's full of shit makes a joke about going to the locker room and taking his grandson there to watch all of the big athletes praying and how touching it was. And Robert Redford makes a joke about they were down on their knees shooting craps, not playing right. And then in semi-tough, after they make the playoffs, the coach tries to get all the athletes in together to say a prayer and they're just ignoring them so they can put champagne on each other and do locker room tricks. Jokes about the hypocrisy of religion in the context of sports, specifically locker room prayers, is like his go-to whipping boy. And I feel like that's Michael Ritchie in a nutshell, where that kind of stand-up comedian-ish idea of like, oh, when they win, they always thank God. You think God cares? You know, and they don't curse God when they fumble. They don't say, God made me fumble the fucking ball. That's like Michael Ritchie's stand-up routine satire depth. And he loves it. It's consistent across those three decades of his career going back to this joke over and over again throughout it. <laughs> Good to know. Good to know. I haven't gotten back to Dickstown yet to review because I'm going from beginning to end on his filmography. So I haven't reached that far yet. I, wa- I watched it again right before we recorded just because I had like an hour and a half to kill. And I was like, I will yeah. always watch Dickstown. We haven't even touched on a simple wish yet. I've never seen it. I don't think anyone has, to be quite honest. I think you're right. 
I it did was, see the Fantastics because Teller from Penn and Teller is in it. It was just used as um, I don't know if you saw this Twitter thread of this movie doesn't really exist. <laughs> that was like the lead off thing where people were like, what? Never heard of this movie. This movie does not really exist. Yeah. But just to just to watching Digs Down is always a, a satisfying thing to do. Just to turn it back to prime cut. The the other big sequence, you know, is when they go to to the rodeo, to the uh, you know, the big country fair sort of thing where the animals are being judged. And there's like a shootout where the guys are chasing them under the bleachers that you mentioned, and then they run out to where the turkey shoot is happening and run away through the field with the guys chasing them with with uh the shotguns and everything and it's and there's a lot of pressure yeah there's a lot of intercutting there right which is like they're being chased the way a calf is being chased and lassoed in the rodeo and it's a turkey shoot and now they're running out into the field like in a literal turkey shoot they're in the literal turkey shoot right and it and like that all sounds fucking idiotic but one of the things about this movie is there's a bunch of things that seem dumb and obvious that somehow play better than they sound. Like even the women drugged out in pens, it sounds like the most ludicrous scene you've ever heard of, but it plays better than you would think. That's one of the things that I think is also strange about this is that like the thresher scene sounds idiotic, but then it's awesome, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the re- reveal of the women in the, in the pens is masterfully handled because you know you see little shots close-ups you see you know with guys sort of in the foreground so you're kind of like looking past them to see these naked bodies in the hay and you're just what is happening you know it yeah. takes you a good two or three minutes to kind of orient yourself to be like they're sailing women the drug drugged up women nude out of these pens this is this is horrific i've never seen anything like this and the idea on its head is absurd but it's yeah it's are these you good, are these good like, old boy farmers going to take them to sheboygan like what is the actual process <laughs> right. like of trafficking happening here you know yeah like are they going to be like they're in you know they're indentured servants at their farms or like what you know um but i guess you know it, it, it does a good job of setting up the idea that like there's no escape from this place you know this big flat place where you know there's nowhere to run except straight ahead where they can yeah. see you for five miles you know and I, and I think that that's why it works because you know you believe that these women are trapped whatever the situation is whatever the logistics of this business are you believe that like they can get away with murder they can get away with prost- you know white slavery and anything else they want to get away with because there's no I'm, I'm sure the phrase white slavery has to be out of vogue by now. I'm sure there's got sex to be sex slavery by you, now that you realize, you know, they can get away with murder. They can get away with sex slavery because who's going to stop them? You know, they, well, they, they, the problem is not them. It's the entire societal structure that treats women like meat. You know, mm-hmm. I think is the idea is that this is the hidden truth about guys like that, that they represent not a specific criminal organization, but a philosophical organization of the world that is inescapable in the heartland. That's absolutely, you know, you go to places mm-hmm. like uh, like Des Moines and those sex rings with heroin are just out of control out there <laughs> in the heartland. You know how it is. You know what this movie just will, will my, my final comment on the movie that sums the movie up perfectly. And I think Michael Ritchie 
perfectly is this end of the movie famously ends with uh, Lee Marvin. He's taken everybody down. Weenie, the, the, the second bat heavy, the secondary bad guy, the mini boss. Uh, they're in a shootout. Lee Marvin shoots him. And as Weenie's falling forward, he goes to stab Lee Marvin. And then we see that we, he's stabbed Lee Marvin with a sausage instead of a knife. Because that's well the thing he's been able to pick up in sort of his frenzied haze after Marianne has been shot, right? And it's like stabbing Lee Marvin with the sausage. It's just like on the verge of being a metaphor, right? Sure. It's, it's both way too pointed and way too vague, right? If you sit there and it's you sort of go, ah, the sausage is the bad thing in this movie, and this guy's got the sausage in his dying breath, like you get the big picture headline, right? But if you take it apart, it just gets dumber and dumber. And I think that that's what happens with Michael Ritchie movies is that you'd be better served to just get the big headline and then shut your brain off for them. That if you try and look too hard at them, they get stupider and stupider. And I think that's Michael Ritchie in a nutshell, where it seems like an idea to have him stab Lee Marvin with the sausage. That looks like an idea. It, it presents itself as an idea that should be read like an idea. But if you try and read it like an idea, it gets worse. It just, it does a disservice to it. And I mm -hmm. think that that's completely Michael Ritchie in a nutshell. And I would be really surprised to... Um, hear that that's in the script and not something michael ritchie came up with well said i'll only say that we kind of talked about this in the context of lee marvin's filmography yeah after dirty dozen and point blank there were a lot of movies that are kind of weird that he starred in yeah but are, but are great and if you think about him if you're talking to somebody another lee marvin fan you say hell in the pacific monty walsh yeah. emperor of the north pole you know, you're going to think of them and go, oh, yeah, yeah, great movie. Holy shit. Great Lee Marvin performance. And even in that context, even with someone who's seen 70% of Lee Marvin's entire filmography, you'll go, oh, yeah, and, and prime cut. And yeah. the, there's always a reaction of, oh, yeah. You know, it's never <laughs> like, yeah, prime cut. It's like, holy shit, you're right. Prime cut is something that exists. It's weird, too. Because Prime Cut seems like it should be the twin film to Point Blank. I don't know how to explain it, but it's of everything he did, it's the mo one that feels most primed to be Point Blanky. Even the, mm -hmm. the Clarabelle actress looking so much like Angie Dickinson, you know, and having the same sort of, you double-crossed me, but we can't resist each other sort of relationship to her and having the, the heavy that he's sort of emotionally intertwined with and coming back to confront his past and the sort of uh, over-the-top style in some aspects. It feels yeah, sure, like, that when he enters yeah. the boat and there's the, the mirror on the ceiling and it starts yeah. him walking into the mirror like and the coming down and on point him. Blank. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, it feels like it should be the twin film to that, but it's not. It's not point blank. No. Definitely not. It is no point blank. <laughs> and I, I agree with you completely that as a Lee Marvin fan, I'm constantly, there's many of his movies that I'm constantly trying to talk myself into liking 
more than I do because I like him in everything. So I want to like the movies more than I do. Uh, and, and this is definitely one of the, the key ones, but it's not Monty Walsh, which is a genuinely phenomenal movie or emperor of the North pole, which is really something, you know, mm-hmm. it's, yeah. it's a strange misfire and it feels good in some way to, to, as you say, Lee Marvin sort of pushing, coming in and pushing Michael Ritchie around. It does feel like Lee Marvin coming in and wrecking a Michael Ritchie movie, which I think is ultimately what I would want out of that collaboration. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Sissy Spacek looks like she could be in Smile the you know, next year yes. or two. I mean, there's even a line in Smile about, you know, the competition being a meat parade. Yeah. So it really is a Michael Ritchie movie that Lee Marvin just walked into and Lee Marvin did it all up. Yeah, it's a meat parade. It's crazy how he gets these very simple ideas in his head and repeats them over and over, you know, even just like, you know, the, the scene with the hot dog that Vincent Camby points out in the candidate and prime cut where it's based on a real incident that happened with Eugene McCarthy, where a guy in a crowd hands Robert Redford, a hot dog and a soda specifically so he can punch him in the face and he won't be able to block it. Right. That happened in Eugene McCarthy. It's sort of like, Oh, the sausage is sort of a, right around surrounded with violence metaphor. I don't know. It's the same thing where it doesn't work, but he does get the, the, um, these ideas and just very simple ideas and repeats them over and over. You're treating women like meat, you know, and that shows up in his films. But is that not what an auteur is? I don't know because I don't think Sergio Leone is an auteur. I'm Vincent Camby. And my, my sense of what an auteur is, is, uh, is more than fundamentally and faintly ludicrous. It's, it's just too, you know, he does. Can you imagine being like, ugh, you want me to write about a Borzage film? I'm better than that. I'm going to tell you about the candidate, which is not very good at all. And then yeah, at any rate, at any rate, we don't need somebody, to... sh- somebody should turn Vincent Camby into sausage. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> John. This is the critical question. This is the crucial question. I, you're going to pick two films for me. What is the best Michael Ritchie movie? And what is the most Michael Ritchie movie? Well, I've already said that most Michael Ritchie movie is The Candidate. I agree with you on that. Uh, but his best movie is... I would say it's either Bad News Bears or Smile in terms of like, you know, those were movies that that were successful you know they're successful in what they're trying to do my favorites though would be something like fletch or dickstown which are just kind of weird and uh kind of happy amazing miraculous accidents why what would you say i'm in total agreement i wish i hadn't asked the question because my answers are exactly the same as yours <laughs> there's there's really nothing to it beyond that it's definitely it's definitely he's definitely an interesting guy to think about i mean uh, again did I we solve the Michael Ritchie problem? I think I we did. <laughs> I think we got somewhere with it. I, I always wonder what he thought of people like Robert Altman, who, or what Altman thought of him, you know, if he thought of him at all. I'm sure Altman despised him. Altman was not a generous or kind person when discussing well, other true. artists. Yeah, but I wonder if he went so far as to be like, that guy's trying to do what I'm doing. Fuck him, you know. I'm sure he was like, that guy is the fucking ball hair stuck to the soap in my bathtub <laughs> i'm sure that's what altman thought of him 
assuming Altman bathed. <laughs> You're right. That's an unfair assumption. <laughs> well, thank you for talking to me about this film, Chris. It was a great idea. Yes, and thank you everyone for listening. Subscribe to our Patreon. Every month we have new Patreon-exclusive stuff. You get every episode early access, early access to articles. We have films, commentary tracks, entire books for our Patreon subscribers. And really, we couldn't do the show or have the website without our subscribers. So we want to thank everybody who has subscribed over the years, who subscribes now, and will subscribe in the future. And... Thank you very much, everybody, for listening. I'm sure Altman said, he needs me, he needs me, he needs me to have a career. Nonsense, nonsense, nonsense.